the very best elements of culture cross borders without having to be brought in the back pockets of millions of immigrants, many of whom probably are not uh, capable of expressing the highest elements of their own culture anyway. My name is Matt Orchard and welcome to 5050 Bias Both Ways. This is the podcast where I talk to the most controversial people I can find and then deliver two incredibly lopsided interviews back to back. The first 15 is as cordial as I can make it and the second 15 is as contentious as humanly possible. And this is it, the season final. Sorry for the delay, but I had some scheduling issues and I really, really wanted to follow up uh, the new write with the alt write. So I uh, ran out the clock to, to make that happen. And I've got to say, over the course of this project, I've had about as good a conversion rate with interview requests as I could have reasonably hoped for. But uh, when it came to the alt-right, they were a surprisingly shy bunch. Uh, however, after emailing a, a dozen or so prospects, I managed to get a big one. Uh, I'm really under the pump getting this episode out. So aside from some basic editing, I haven't actually had time to sit down and properly listen to it. Uh, I'm honestly not sure how I did this week. I feel like I let too many things slide, but I was sort of caught off guard by some revelations. Uh, for instance, a white ethno state wouldn't necessarily be exclusively white. Uh, I still haven't gotten my head around quite how that works, and I'm not sure if that's a, a common concession among white nationalists, but it definitely changed uh, my planned line of questioning. There were a couple of clips that I, I had really wanted to play back to Jared Taylor as well. I, I thought that um, they might have helped clarify exactly what his positions and his proposals and his views uh, are, but unfortunately we, we ran into uh, some technical problems there as well. I do have a suspicion that Mr. Taylor may temper his proposals based on who he's talking to and what objections he's getting, but I might be wrong and it wouldn't be fair to try to uh, relitigate the conversation after the fact when he's not here to speak for himself. So I'll leave it there and let you be the judge of how everything comes across. I would be particularly interested in feedback for this one. Uh, on the Facebook page, Facebook slash 5050 Matt Orchard, the subreddit r slash 5050 podcast, or the website the5050podcast.blogspot.com. As I've said, I'd love to do more seasons of these in the future, and you can still make that more likely by telling your friends about the series and sharing it far and wide on social media. Thanks again to Robert Spencer, Ali Rizvi, Kelsey Hazard, Lucian Wintrich, and double thanks to Karen Strawn. This podcast would not be anything without its guests. And on that note, Jared Taylor has been described as the intellectual godfather of the alt-right and as the editor and founder of American Renaissance, which has been described as a white supremacist publication. Taylor rejects this term and describes himself as a race realist and white advocate, though he will accept white nationalist when prodded. For better or for worse, Jared Taylor. I am joined by Jared Taylor of American Renaissance. Jared, thank you so much for joining me today. 
No, it's my pleasure. Very good. Now, one reason I really wanted to have you on, Jared, is to be a representative of the alt-right, which is a, a term that I know we've heard thrown around in the media quite a lot in the last couple of years. So uh, a lot of people who are given this label reject it, but you're not one of those people as far as I can tell. So can you give us a quick explanation of what the alt-right is and where you fit into the movement? I don't particularly embrace this label, but uh, I don't necessarily reject it either. Uh, Good enough. I consider myself a race realist and a white advocate, and we can define those terms later if you wish. But uh, in my view, the alt-right rejects egalitarian orthodoxies of many kinds. The idea is that all cultures are basically equivalent, that uh, the sexes are more or less replaceable, that uh, all religions are equally true and beautiful, that every sexual orientation is equally healthy and wonderful. Um, and uh, But the most fundamental, and I think the unifying aspect of uh, the rejection of racial orthodoxy that characterizes the alt-right is the rejection of the idea that, that races are absolutely identical and interchangeable. And as far as that's concerned, uh, this is an idea that I've been promoting for uh, more than 25 years. So uh, I have been active in this area as a racial activist and a uh, racial realist for far longer than the term alt-right has existed. Yeah, I I understand. And when I talk about alt-right, I mean, I think we're sort of on the same page. I've always viewed alt-right as not necessarily having one definitive definition, but that there's certainly a, a inherent racial component to the movement. Would you agree on that much? Yes, I think it would be difficult to characterize someone as being part of the alt-right who did not believe that there are uh, racial differences in average IQ and that did not believe that whites have legitimate interests as a group, uh, just as every other racial group has legitimate interests. And, and when I say uh, alt-right, I think that someone with your personal history isn't the kind of person that would come to most people's minds. Uh, you grew up in Japan, is that correct? Yes, I lived there till I was 16. And did, did your growing up in Japan, uh, do you think, shape your views in, in any way? Or Everyone assumes that it must have. But uh, search my memory and my conscience as well as I can, I can see no influence that it had uh, on my childhood thinking and on my young adult thinking. I was a conventional liberal on all of these questions up until my 30s or so. And it's only in retrospect, uh, after I had a better understanding of the significance of race, that I looked back on my experience in Japan and my knowledge of Japan and began to appreciate the benefits of the homogeneity that Japan enjoys. When, when you talk about how it wasn't until your 30s that you sort of came to where you are now, was there any big moment in your life that did bring you to the worldview that you, you hold today, or was it more of a gradual process there? It was mostly a gradual process, but uh, one of the experience that experiences that did perhaps nudge me out of the usual, most more comfortable channel of orthodoxy on these questions was uh, an experience I had in West Africa. Uh, I had spent time in Ivory Coast, which was doing very well. This is in about 1970. Mm-hmm. And it was called the West Africa, uh, I'm sorry, it was called the Japan of West Africa. It was doing so well. And then I went to Liberia, which was just in a terrible mess. 
the roads were full of enormous potholes that could swallow an automobile. The buildings were tumbled down. Most of the people were dressed in rags. And I went to, La, to Monrovia, the capital, and went to the University of Liberia and found a young fellow and uh, just got into discussion with him about the differences between Ivory Coast and uh, Liberia. And I said, well, why is Ivory Coast doing so well and why is Liberia such a mess? He said, that's a very easy question to answer. We did not have the benefits of European colonization. And I was 19 at the time, and this this quite staggered me. I had always thought of European colonization as exploitative, this holding uh, African countries back. But he saw it strictly in terms of the possible of the benefits that the French had bought the, brought to the Ivory Coast and that Liberia had not been able to enjoy because it was settled by American blacks. Uh, so I was rather horrified to hear that view. But in retrospect, again, that that's one of the experiences I had that uh, nudged me away from the mainstream in terms of my understanding of race. Yeah, well, I mean, a longing for colonialism is probably something that would catch me off guard too it's not something that you know most people would anticipate i guess so i can i can see why, why that would affect you we, you were talking about him um japan being a homogenous culture as well just i mean speaking of homogenous cultures i think a lot of people would assume the alt-right to be one of those and i guess we sort of touched on before how that's not necessarily the case one thing i've noticed about you know even as say something as niche as something like the alt-right being quite fractured is that you've got an I know a lot of criticism within some of those circles for not being uh, sufficiently anti-Semitic. <laughs> Maybe I'm not anti-Semitic at all. Uh, no, I was but, being uh, cute with the phrasing. I, was, but I just wanted yes. you to expand on that a little bit. Oh, there are many people who have an understanding of race who have reached the conclusion that uh, the problems that white people face, this notion that uh, uh, white people are unable to assert their own interests, this idea that many white people have that diversity is a wonderful thing, even if it reduces them to a minority. Uh, some people who understand the problems with this kind of thinking blame Jews for having promoted ideologies that undermine white racial consciousness. And I think it is certainly true that Jews have been particularly active in spreading ideas of that kind, but they are not the only ones, and not all Jews are involved in that kind of activity. So in my view, uh, there are, well, I know racially conscious Jews who uh, agree with me essentially on all points about the survival of Western civilization, the survival of white people, who understand that uh, whites have a right to be who they are, and uh, that only whites can be the kind of people who will carry European civilization forward. And so I think it is a mistake to assume that all Jews are somehow the enemies of uh, white racial consciousness. And uh, for the most part, I really don't speak on the question of the role of Jews in uh, uh, as minorities in Western societies. There are plenty of people who speak on that subject, but I don't. That's not my primary focus. It's not my primary preoccupation. And again, uh, I reject the idea that all Jews are somehow the enemies of racially conscious white people. So it's in that respect that uh, people accuse me sometimes of being in the service of Jews, because I will talk about racial problems, but not talk about what they consider to be the real problem, namely what they see as the nefarious activities and machinations of Jews. So I, I can take from all of this that you're not a, a huge fan of Adolf Hitler then? Uh, no, yeah. no. I mean, for heaven's sake, uh, he, didn't he start a war in which there were, what, approximately 60 million people dead, uh, most of whom were white people? Uh, uh, hard to be a fan of anybody who did that. With the... 
the sort of criticisms we were just alluding to there, does that, the sort of American Renaissance conferences and everything, because I know there was a big flare-up I was reading about in 2006 with David Duke um, that was someone that kind of made the headlines. Does it does it cause a bit of a stir there, or have you, as an organisation... Uh, I'm sorry? Uh, I, I didn't quite hear your you, question. There's a bit of disturbance in the background. I was, I was just saying or asking that um, I know that there's been some sort of publicised events like with David Duke at an American Renaissance conference a few years ago, or almost ten years ago, I think. In terms of the, you know, the, the anti-Semitism issue, um, has it gen- has it generally been a, a talking point or caused any stirs for the most no, part at your conferences? That, or that's that's really the only occasion in which it's come up in an unpleasant way. Yep. There are people who wish to discuss uh, uh, the influence of Jews. And uh, it's perfectly okay to bring up that question. But if I'm asked about it, I generally give the answer uh, that I just gave to you. On that occasion, uh, David Duke uh, got up and made a a veiled denunciation of Jews. And then one of the Jewish members of the audience uh, got up and and denounced him. So it was an unpleasant confrontation. Mm -hmm. But there's never been anything like that since. Uh, it's been said that the rise of the alt-right is in part responsible for the election of Donald Trump, and you you were very supportive of him during the campaign. What do you make of his presidency just shy of a year in? Oh, I'm uh, disappointed by many of the things that he's done, but I expected to be disappointed. Donald Trump is by no means a systematic thinker on the question of race. He is not committed to the idea of a white racial consciousness or the survival of whites as a group, as far as I can tell. I don't think he thinks in terms of the demographic future of the United States. So I never expected him to approach the presidency in any uh, ideologically organized way that would uh, be one that defended the legitimate interests of whites. Now, uh, he has spent a lot of time on typical Republican questions such as uh, uh, the so-called Obamacare, trying to get rid of that, tax reform and things of that nature. If he had an entirely free hand, I think he probably would reduce uh, legal immigration. He probably would uh, get rid of birthright citizenship. He probably would uh, try to deport all illegal immigrants. He already has tried to limit the immigration of Muslims into the United States, but he hasn't gone about uh, approaching those things with the the diligence and deliberation that uh, one might have expected had he been really a racially committed white man who was interested in preserving a white majority. Uh, Because I never assumed that he was such a person, I didn't expect him to go about those projects uh, in any kind of really systematic way. On the other hand, uh, he is a vast improvement over whatever uh, Democrat would have been presented and uh, is certainly much better than Hillary Clinton. Okay. And uh, as a white advocate, because uh, you were talking about it, he might kind of flesh out your views more at the start. I guess I'll, I'll give you some room to do that now. Uh, as a white advocate, I mean, what would you say are the biggest disadvantages faced by whites today? Well, the biggest disadvantages uh, are primarily uh, displacement by non-whites. In, in European countries, for example, and the United States, uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, there is no realization, no official realization, that the replacement of whites by non-whites will result in any kind of disagreeable change. This is something that is understood and taken for granted by non-white people everywhere. 
you could not possibly trick the Mexicans into thinking that an immigration policy that was going to reduce Mexicans to minority was somehow a wonderful exercise in cultural diversity and that they should be celebrating the culture enrichment that was brought by Haitians or Turks or Frenchmen or people unlike themselves. It is only whites who have been browbeaten and bamboozled into thinking that uh, ultimately being reduced to a minority and putting their destiny in the hands of people unlike themselves is somehow a virtuous thing. This is a sickness that afflicts only whites. So uh, it is really one of my uh, primary goals is to try to persuade whites that they are on a course, on a suicidal course ultimately, that if they continue to let their tr societies transform in ways that will reduce them to a minority, and if they continue to encourage uh, intermarriage, then ultimately, uh, several hundred years from now, uh, who knows, maybe there would be no more white people at all in the United States. And this is something that I oppose. I think it is perfectly natural, normal, and healthy for people to want their people to prosper and to survive and uh, to go on forever. Uh, this is the way the Japanese think about Japan. This is the way uh, Indians think about India. This is the way Koreans think about Korea. All non-white countries, uh, the only exception, the only white country that really thinks in those terms is Israel. Israel and Israelis recognize that if Israel ceases to be a majority Jewish nation, it will change in ways that Israelis will find disagreeable. I think the same can be true, the same is true, obviously true for France, for example. If the French cease to be a majority in France, France will have changed in, in disagreeable ways that uh, I think can be, uh, that would be irretrievable. And yet, for a Frenchman to say, I want France to remain French, that is hatred, that is white supremacy, that is Nazism. Whereas for an Israeli to say, I want Israel to remain Jewish, that's perfectly fine. Uh, likewise, for a Mexican or for an Indian to say, I want Mexico to remain Mexican or India to remain Indian, that's perfectly fine too. Why is it only if whites wish to remain the majority in their country is that hatred. This is a fatal double standard, and until that double standard is abolished, whites uh, will inevitably dwindle away. Alrighty, so uh, going over to the, the next section, Jared, uh, you've talked in, in the past about how you reject the term white supremacist because you view it as a pejorative, and I mean, I'll, I'll grant you actually that you don't argue whites are inherently objectively superior as such so i mean i'll concede that that particular description might be a touch severe um you prefer as you've said though race realist though and i think i don't think that's nearly severe enough so i don't i don't think that your views on race are just merely realistic and i don't think that your policy prescriptions are by any stretch of the imagination I feel more than comfortable personally describing you as a white nationalist because you have explicitly called for the creation of exclusively white nations. So would you object to that label? I don't reject that label, but uh, it's okay. in some respects a limiting label. Uh, whites have many, many interests other than the creation of some kind of ethnostate. Furthermore, I don't believe that a white ethnostate needs to be 100% white. I think that would be impractical at this point, and bringing one about would involve uh, means of separation of people, probably against their will, that uh, I think are simply not legitimate. So for those reasons, I don't call myself a white nationalist. Furthermore, 
terms like Basque nationalist or Kurdish nationalist, uh, they come with a faint aroma of milita milit uh, militarism, the idea that people are prepared to throw bombs in order to create a Basque nation or a Kurdish nation. Uh, I reject any kind of violent means. And for that reason, I think uh, the term nationalism in that sense uh, has, uh, has implications that I reject. Well, in, in the past, you I have heard you talk about creating, uh, it, it, rather than just sort of, sort of needling you on this, actually, and this is, yeah. I, bought, I bought a clip in case it would kind of come to this sort of bartering of the definition of terms. Um, yes. Can I just play a, a minute-long clip from a very friendly interview you did on Reality Calls where you talk about about this concept? Because uh, I think it'll sort of cut to the chase quicker than, than going back okay. and forth in it. What would the United States do if everyone in America saw race as I do? I think that uh, white people would realize that it's hopeless to try to live together, certainly with blacks and people of other races, on any footing of, egal of, of equality. I what can't hear anything, by the way. Would be an instant. That's okay. That's unfortunate. <laughs> Um, okay, unfortunately, uh, we're experiencing some audio issues there, so Jared cannot hear the clip. But uh, in, in the clip, you basically say that um, if people came around to your way of thinking, uh, yes. we would be able to set up areas that were white or uh, Hispanic or black or what have you. People would be financially incentivized to move over there if they weren't the corresponding skin color to where they were situated at at the moment, at the time of your establishing that nation, you refer to it as a, a sovereign state, uh, a place of your own. So, I mean, that does sound like setting up a exclusively white nation to me. No, it doesn't have to be exclusive, but then, and the methods should be voluntary. Uh, I think that once, in fact, it were established that a territory were uh, that belonged to blacks, then uh, the blacks who lived there would probably be rather more tolerant of the non-blacks among them because they would know that they would never become a, their, their numbers would not increase, they would not become a threat. And the same would be true for a general white area. And don't, don't forget, I'm entirely in favor of groups joining and establishing multiracial, multi-ethnic entities if that's what they prefer. I'm all, all I'm saying is that the organs of power in the United States and all of the institutions of the United States are dedicated to the idea of bringing people, putting people together, mixing them as much as possible. If all of those pressures were released and if it were recognized that it's perfectly natural and healthy for people to wish to live in a society that reflects their own views and is one that is racially coherent, then these would form naturally. And if need be, if uh, if it were uh, considered desirable to provide financial incentives to make people shift from one area to another, that would be good too. But that's not necessarily an obligatory part of such an undertaking. I think most people, most people prefer to live in a society that reflects their own racial heritage and their own culture that's very closely tied to race. But as I say, those who wish to live in a mixed area and want to establish such a one, they have my blessing as well. So, I mean, you really personally don't like living in an area of any cultural diversity. I mean, sort of music from different areas, sort of different uh, different foods, different customs and everything like that. You don't find that culturally enriching at all? You just want it as wide as humanly possible, ideally, honestly? <clears throat> no. <coughs> no? For example, if you go to Japan, 
you can get Indian food, you can get Mexican food, uh, you can get Italian food. Uh, you don't necessarily need a huge number of Mexicans and Italians and Indians living in Japan for that kind of cuisine to be available. Likewise, uh, I like opera. It doesn't mean that there have to be millions of Indians uh, living in the United, uh, I'm sorry, millions of Italians living in the United States for me to enjoy or appreciate opera. They're the very best elements of culture cross borders without having to be brought in the back pockets of millions of immigrants, many of whom probably are not uh, capable of expressing the highest elements of their own culture anyway. So no, uh, I speak several languages. Uh, I like being around Japanese people. Uh, I like being around people practically of all different races and cultures, but I like to visit them on their own terms, and I don't want them arriving in my society in sufficiently large numbers so that they change its character. Well, here's actually a good transition to another thing I wanted to talk to you about. So you've talked about the white race facing the threat of extinction, and you've said that you want your great-grandchildren to to look like you. Uh, It's worth pointing out, though, that if one of your children has a child with a black partner and then your grandchild grows up to have a child with another black partner, the resulting great-grandchild is going to have just as much of your genetic footprint on them as they would if there were a white partner on both of those occasions. And, and, and I mean, neither blacks nor whites are having their, their races extinguished any more than the other in that scenario. Well, uh, if that were to continue, say my great-grandchildren would consider themselves black, more than likely. They would look black. They would look, they would look far blacker than they would white. White racial traits I'm not sure that's necessary- physiologically. Right? Yeah. I'm not. I'm not sure if that's necessarily true, though. I mean, I've seen mixed race uh, children come out looking more white and, and more black on occasion. I mean, I don't. I. I'm not sure if that's accurate, but I can't say for sure. But well, black traits are dominant when you have uh, one white parent and one black parent. You will never get a blonde child or a blue-eyed child if a European and a African uh, have a child together. In any case, the identification, the identification of that child would probably be more black than white. That's the way things work in the United States at any rate. Furthermore, we whites are a worldwide minority. We are what perhaps uh, five to six percent of the world population and having an even smaller percentage of the world's babies. And so unless whites have some consciousness of the need to preserve their own genetic heritage, even if their own genes do not completely disappear, they will be swamped in this much larger mass of uh, genes that are not white. And I think it's, it's, uh, uh, we can count on the fact that if the if the progeny of whites become increasingly Hispanic or increasingly black, their identification will be more black, more Hispanic, less European, less white, and society will will reflect those changes. And I think that whites have the right to preserve their own values, their own heritage. And what 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 on earth is wrong with that? What on earth is wrong with wanting to preserve? Just going back to my original point, because I didn't mean to sidetrack on the way the child would look as such. I just yeah, I wasn't sure about yeah. that, but it's not of primary importance to me. Uh, my, my main point is that the, the resulting great-grandchild, it's just as much tailor. There's a much tailor lineage than as there would be, and I don't see why the color of the skin is really that important, important at because, all. 
because that child would cease to be white. It's like uh, many what? people claim to have Indian ancestors, by I mean American Indians. But you can say, oh, uh, one of my great-great-grandmothers was a Cherokee princess. Well, yeah. that person is no more Cherokee than you or I, and any Cherokee-ness of the way that person lives or the society that that person creates has disappeared to zero. The same would happen with whatever residual white genes there were in a person who were who was largely black or largely oriental and lived in a largely black or oriental society. That uh, that genetic contribution would, would cease to have any meaning. One thing I thought we would have to touch on before we uh, end the interview, because uh, we've got about five minutes left on my clock, uh, you often make a big difference a big deal, sorry, out of the, the differences in average IQ between races. And um, the argument over differences in average IQ uh, and how much of that is, is innate isn't something I actually want to spend too much time on, um, not because it's a radioactive topic necessarily, which I know it is, but more because whenever I see someone get into a heated argument about that sort of thing with someone like yourself, what, what I don't like is that there seems to be an underlying implication that you being wrong on that is the is of you know the utmost importance. So I mean, basically, if you're right about IQ, then that would uh, support a lot of your other views, which I, I don't actually think is true. But I want to just bring it up quickly. So I mean, when, whenever I hear you talk about the subject, I I get the impression that you represent it as if heritability of IQ is just a completely settled debate. Pretty much all the reading that I've done seems to indicate to me that most academics who have studied this area wind up even more confused than when they went in uh, when it comes to environmental versus genetic influences on that. And most, as far as I can tell, seem to lean toward it being a mix to one degree or another. And that's leaving, I mean, that's leaving aside just criticism that IQ isn't even necessarily a definitive measure of intelligence in the first place. A couple of things on that. Uh, the only real debate is the extent to which IQ is heritable. Uh, practically no one today thinks that IQ is a consequence 100% of environment. The range these days is somewhere I'll, I'll between... I'll grant you that. Excuse me? I'll, I'll, I'll grant you that. I, yeah, I mean... It, yes. Yeah. So the question is, is it 80%? Is it 40%? Is it 60%? The point is there is a heritable component. And the heritability of racial differences in IQ, likewise, I think is, is a well-established question. The, uh, the only question is... Uh, to what extent is it environmental, to what extent is it not? But the only reason I bring up the whole question of race and IQ primarily is to point out that if there are racial differences in intelligence and they have a substantial genetic component, then whites must not be blamed for the shortcomings of blacks if those shortcomings are due to inherent biological racial differences. As far as establishing separate societies and wanting <clears throat> my group to continue, it makes no difference whether a group has a higher or lower IQ. I think East Asians have on average higher IQs than whites. That doesn't mean that I want my society be, to be displaced or replaced by Asians either. So IQ is a sort of subsidiary argument that has to do with the extent to which whites have been uh, made to feel guilty about the failures well, of blacks and increasingly Hispanics as well for there? reasons that I believe okay. are not their fault. Okay. You talk about blaming whites. I think that's a pretty coarse way of putting it. I mean, there are some advocates out there that might put it in those terms. But I think more broadly, people look at you know these issues that are faced by, um, by certain races and they look at socioeconomic issues 
correlations and we go well i mean aren't there ways that we could improve the situation because i mean go, going going back to uh heritability and um environmental factors uh quickly from what i understand the the general consensus is that you're born with an iq ceiling and then your environment is going to affect how close you get to hitting that ceiling and presumably i, I think it's fairly well supported that uh, if you are born into a good environment, you know, good nutrition, good schooling, you've got uh, you know, good parenting, uh, you're more likely to end up getting closer to your ceiling and uh, then presumably getting a better job, a better quality of living, less likely to, you know, get into drugs, that kind of thing. I mean, it's not so much blaming whites, it's just how can we make the situation better as a society for certain groups of oh. people. Oh, uh, I, the American society has spent trillions of dollars trying to improve the environments of blacks. There have, we have this system called affirmative action also, which is designed to boost blacks into uh, more prestigious universities and into better jobs, even if they are not as well qualified on the assumption that they have been victims of environment and they wish to and they must be pushed forward to overcome that environment. Uh, I would never say that environment has no effect, but there have been heritability studies that involve uh, identical twins separated at birth, for example, who have been reared in very, very different kinds of environments, but who are extremely similar, not just in levels of IQ, but the kinds of professions they go into, the kind of hobbies they have, even the brand of cigarettes they smoke. It's, it's almost eerie and spooky just how similar identical twins are, even if they have been reared, separated at birth, and reared in completely different environments. So there is a limit to what can be achieved. Uh, by manipulating the environment. And the limits are really rather low from all we can tell. All the kinds of heroic intervention at a young age in the Abecedarian Project, in Head Start programs, and even the more intensive early intervention programs have, have had very, very little long-term effect in raising the IQs of any population. So the idea that we can intervene in the environment in a way to equalize the IQs of blacks and whites on average, I think is a Dream. Do you mind if we go a bit over time, by the way? The clock's no, run no, out. But, no, no, we yep. can keep going. going yeah. Okay. I don't know if it would lead to a, a complete equalization of IQ. I think that's neither here nor there. But I'm just talking about social programs. If you, um, if you make things so kids are more likely to finish school and get a degree. I mean, you don't even necessarily need to increase someone's IQ to, to make that a more likely outcome. I mean, from what you're saying, are you seriously saying that you, you don't think that any social programs of any kind, forget affirmative action, but just any social programs of any kind have improved the lives of sort of marginalized groups in America at all? Oh, I think affirmative action has certainly improved the lives of its beneficiaries. They've gone to better schools. They've gotten higher incomes. Uh, it doesn't mean that their children are necessarily going to be any smarter than they would have been otherwise. Sure, uh, social programs redistribute wealth. And if you're the beneficiary of redistributed wealth, then you're going to live better. There's no question about that. But that doesn't change the underlying biological differences. Are you saying that making school more accessible to certain people uh, and making the quality of education better for certain people uh, isn't going to lead to a trend line improvement on the, the outcomes of their quality no. of life? 
Look, look, everyone benefits from education that is tuned precisely to that person's abilities. We would be all better off if we had individual tutors. But the fact remains that if everyone had individual tutors and we all had educational programs that were pitched to our very personal abilities, the gap between the high achievers and the low achievers would be even greater than it is today. Everyone benefits from instruction that is pitched to that person's capabilities. But if the high achievers got anything like the attention that we now lavish on the low achievers, then you would have even greater differences. And I'm talking I'm not talking just about racial differences, but within races as well. We all understand that there are going to be some white children who perform better than some than other white children. We understand this. We take that for granted. We don't fret about this. We don't worry about narrowing the gaps. The only gap we worry about narrowing is the gap between blacks and whites. Nor do we worry about narrowing the gap between high-achieving Asian students and white students. People just ignore that when they're talking about uh, the, the viciousness of American society and how it's held blacks down. Well, if it's viciously holding blacks, why is it not viciously holding down Asians? Nobody likes to talk about that. These differences simply reflect differences in average ability. And just as we have learned to live with the fact that there are some white students who are going to get straight A's, some white students are going to get straight D's. We learn to live with that. That's just uh, the way life is. We should recognize that on average, blacks and Hispanics are not going to do as well as Hispanics and Asians. Now, let us do as much as we can to have everyone perform at their maximum capacity. But let us get rid of this futile idea of having everyone in America perform on average at the same level as Asians. Okay, I just don't see why we can't do all that while also living next door to each other. But um, I'd... Well, but because people, well, uh, I've explained before, most people are happier living in a neighborhood and in a culture that reflects their group. Now, again, if those who want to live next door to blacks and Hispanics and Asians and lesbians and blind people and one-legged people, uh, nudists, uh, fruit juice drinkers, if they want to live in a neighborhood like that, that's fine. I have absolutely no objection to that. But those people should not then turn around and condemn people like me who wish to live in a neighborhood and perhaps in a nation that is majority my race, majority my culture. They should not think that they are somehow morally superior to someone like me. Well, I mean, that's the sort of issue I have whenever you bring up that, you know, those sort of studies about how even um, people in higher socioeconomic uh, situations, you know, more income, I should say, um, tend to choose a neighborhood that's um, that's racially similar, to them, whether they be white, black, Hispanic or what have you. Uh, it's interesting, but I don't think it's really that important. And I, I think that there is a huge difference between a suburb and a nation. Well, uh, of course there's a difference between a suburb and a nation. But the preferences that go into a suburb or the preferences that go into a uh, church congregation, uh, those preferences uh, reflect the deep needs of human beings. And I believe that a nation should likewise reflect those preferences. They are something that is going to give coherence to a country. Today in the United States, if you have a black candidate, the vast majority of blacks are going to vote for that candidate. And there will come a time as whites become increasingly minority when the whites will likewise vote overwhelmingly for the white candidate. Elections therefore become a racial headcount rather than a rational attempt to understand what the public wants in terms of alternative policies. Every 
mixed nation, mixed in any kind of sharp way in terms of religion, race, language, all of these things, all of those societies have cleavages. And race is the most difficult of those cleavages to paper over because it's visible, because it's biological, and because race is very, very frequently tied to statistically detectable differences in average behavior. So why, why should we try to set up a country in which we have to contend with all of these competing in interests, all of these societal fault lines? This is a big, big mistake. You, what you're suggesting is, well, okay, Japan seems to be doing fine, China seems to be doing fine, but they'd be vastly better if they imported uh, several million uh, Pakistanis, uh, several million Afghans, you know, several million Haitians. Give them diversity. Well, no, no, no. They understand perfectly well that their society would not survive in its, in a recognizable way, that kind of change. This well, change has happened gradually in the United States, but the United States is ceasing to be a nation that reflects European values, and it will eventually have no coherent core values at all. I think there is there is something very very important about putting a really explicit uh, racial qualification on immigration, and I know that you uh, and people sort of in your movement often refer to Japan as an example of you know why we have a problem with what what they do. But with Japan's immigration, it's actually not explicitly racial. I'll grant you that they are the most homogenous developed country in the world, no doubt, but they don't actually have a policy saying, <clears throat> you know, if you don't have Japanese, um, Japanese blood or whatever, you can't get in. It's, it's just, um, it's, it's strict. It says that you have to uh, work here for several years. You have to, you have to have a, a steady income. You have to uh, reject oh, your, it's... you have to reject your uh, current citizenship. So it's strict, but it doesn't say you have to be Japanese. It's not technically an ethno state as such. <laughs> well, uh, to become a Japanese citizen under most circumstances, you have to marry a Japanese citizen, and that's not even enough. You have to, in effect, be adopted by a Japanese family. It keeps the number of naturalizations into Japanese citizenship extremely, extremely low. So they might as well say, okay, Japan is for the Japanese. Now, there was an exception. At one time, they were making it easier for Brazilians of Japanese ancestry to move and live in Japan. But the Japanese found that these Brazilians or these Japanese who'd grown up in Brazilian were sufficiently culturally different so that they didn't fit in very well either. So many of them were asked to leave. No, Japan, uh, you can say it's not an explicitly racial uh, policy. It's a policy basically of no immigration. Now, if there were people, if there were colonies of Japanese who were very much like the Japanese living in Japan, I suspect they would let them immigrate. But there are no such people. Now, what about Israel? Israel has a policy whereby it will let Jews immigrate. They have a very restrictive and limited immigration policy. And I believe that's a perfectly legitimate one. Yeah. And I think that for, same, for the very similar reasons, European countries should have the same kind of ability to limit their immigration to so as to preserve their natural their natural uh, population and their cultural core. Yeah. I mean, just to be clear, I'm not even actually defending um, Japanese immigration policy. I think that it is overly strict. But um, I'm just saying, I think if you put an explicitly, uh, explicitly racial policy on these kind of things, then that can 
it can lead to a lot of problems. Um, well, I don't see why it need, need, need lead to problems at all. Uh, if in, in Liberia, for example, you cannot own property and you cannot become a citizen of Liberia unless you are African. I don't see that that's led to any problems at all. If, for example, the French had an immigration system according to which uh, only white people were allowed to immigrate to France, what problem could that possibly create? Well, you, I mean, you talk about how this sort of thing would be easy in the States. Can you name uh, one example of a situation where there's been a racially diverse nation and then there's been a move to forcibly or heavily incentivize, you know, deliberately uh, make it a homogenous nation from that point? Have you, can you name one situation where that has happened and then unspeakable atrocities haven't, haven't ensued after that? Oh, uh, well, uh, there are not many such occasions. There have been separations of peoples. The Soviet Union broke up into what are effectively ethno-states without unimaginable atrocities. Uh, It is unfortunate that uh, India and Pakistan separated uh, for reason uh, in ways that were not peaceful, but they are vastly better off being separate now than uh, having lived together. If they'd been forced to continue under those circumstances, it would be even worse. Uh, it uh, Oh, the Czechs and the Slovaks went their separate ways. There, there are many examples of uh, people separating, so you and think- it does not have to be. It does not have to be uh, bloody. It does not have to be full of uh, atrocities. Ultimately, however, if whites are facing l- extinction in the long term, then that is the primary goal that they must have. And all survival, survival is the first law. And I do not think that the survival of whites is going to require any kind of violence. But uh, if there are people who are opposed to white survival then uh, uh, and prepared to use violence to stop white survival, then perhaps there would be violence. It's like the people who are prepared to use violence to try to stop people like me simply getting together and talking about these things. I just want to be left alone to have a conversation. But there are people who so much hate the idea of white racial consciousness that they're prepared to use violence simply to deprive us of freedom of speech. Now, that kind of mentality, if extended into the future, might be one that is prepared to use violence to prevent whites from taking the measures necessary for survival. But I don't think anything that I'm proposing is inherently violent at all. Okay. Well, um, I certainly think you should be free to speak, Jared. And uh, thank you again for speaking with me today. I've um, probably been uh, a little bit too greedy with your time there, so we'll we'll wrap it up now. But uh, again, I appreciate you uh, making the time. Okay. No, it's been my pleasure.